Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees in the Multicultural Mess and Secular Scam. Thank you very much for joining me today. I'm really honored by your presence and I'm re I really appreciate your time. I know you take time out every day and so thank you very much once again. I hope you had a great day. And I know it's morning where you are, and it's still even night for me, so <laughs> I am on the other side of the world, but I still love you guys, and, and thank you so much for your support. Um, this podcast, like I said, is about knowledge, knowledge to understand the past, the currents that form our waves, atwa, all that lies between, um, and to heal, use that knowledge to do research, to... Um, to gather more information, to have conversations, to have debates in your homes, not on TV because I cannot stand those TV debates, and to heal greatly. Now, we will all have different points of view, it doesn't matter, and um, yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. So today we're going to uh, do the series, continue the series on Dharma and Vedas. And we're going in go to go into history, the history of the Indian subcontinent. So we'll start off um, with um, ancient history of the Indian subcontinent. It is vast, okay? And I've condensed this down to as much as possible I could, I could condense it to, and we'll go from there. But just to give you a brief... Uh, brief image of, of the Indian subcontinent. Um, so the subcontinent of India is said to be, have once been part of the African shield. Okay, The shield split and drifted eastwards and then north. The landmass banged against the Asian shield, giving us the Himalayas as a mountain range. We do not have a time range for this. Our historical knowledge of the subcontinent starts around 9000 BCE where we have early Neolithic art, art with the first confirmed semi-permanent settlements. Uh, we have, early, um, sorry, in present-day uh, Madhya Pradesh, that's central India, 11,000 years ago, we found, we found bimbetkas, okay, or rock shelters. Uh, the Stone Age are rock paintings found from the bim bimbetka rock shelters are said to be from 30,000 years ago. In this same time period of the city of Dwarka and Gujarat coast was founded. Now below the sea level, researchers have come up with a time frame of 32,000 years. In ancient India, the city was called Dwarti, okay? D-V-A-R-A-V-A-T-I. In ancient Sanskrit text, namely the Harivamsa, this city was part of the Sindhu Kingdom, Sindh, a region now in Pakistan. The city is one of seven places of, of several of spiritual pilgrimages, or scientifically speaking, ancient electromagnetic fault lines. It was built according to ancient texts on land, released from the ocean, uh, what we call today as reclaimed land. However, it lies below the ocean again today, which means when the climate changed and the ice age melted at the turn of the last age, ice age, the sea came back to reclaim what belonged to it. Around 7,500 years ago, should I say 7,500 BCE, we got a civilization at the Gulf of Kambat on the west coast of India. Today, the state of Gujarat. 
This date was later disputed and final and the final time span has not been pinpointed. However, the find resembled another milestone and a civilization which belongs to this region, that is the Indus Valley Civilization. This age starts around 4000 BCE, maybe even more, and developed to become one of the most planned and well-developed places on Earth. This valley sits in what is modern-day Pakistan. However, climate change brought about one of the series of events which will change history. The Saraswati River, as mentioned before, dried up in 2300 BCE. Uh, its tributaries <coughs> would have once dried up too. Uh, meaning agriculture in this region would have changed. The slow descent to drought conditions would have led to catastrophic economics of this region, causing the civilization to end. Needless to say, this phase produced what is most prophetic, uh, is the most prophetic art and metallurgical works of this time period. Urban planning, drainage and water systems, trade and commerce was very well developed during uh, making it surely the center of power in the East. As this age came to an end around 1800 BCE, <coughs> sorry, Abrahamic thought says the Vedic age became begins and the Vedas were written down by the Aryan people who invaded the subcontinent. Like I mentioned earlier, in this chapter, the Aryan invasion is complete hogwash. Okay, well, I, I mentioned it earlier, but uh, not in this chapter, but this is for my notes, so I apologize. But uh, like I also mentioned before, like I did mention, the Aryan invasion is absolute hogwash. No archaeological backing except from the Marxists to control the media and the academia, along with their allies in the Islamic and Christian establishments of the country. The Vedic age is, however, said to last around 1000 BCE. So to skip over the Abrahamic hogwash and give you the real events of this era, between 1900 BCE and 1300 BCE, we come to what is now known as the Cemetery Age culture, which in modern-day Punjab, which is modern-day Punjab, it revolves around a cemetery found in this region where the bones were dated to the Bronze Age, um, uh, 3000 BC uh, to 1200 BCE, okay? Uh, historians use this culture and time period to say that this is when the Aryans invaded the Indian subcontinent from Central Asia. However, as mentioned in this chapter, in 1646 BCE, the volcanic um, eruption in Santorini, Greece, disrupted life around the area. This men from this region would this meant that people from this region would have migrated in part towards the Indian subcontinent. Uh, so the Santorini, uh, Greece area is around also the Levant, the Aegean Sea, you get the Levant. And so people from this area would have uh, gone out in all directions and some would have migrated in part towards the Indian subcontinent where food was in plenty and effects of the volcanic eruptions would not have disrupted life so much. They were not Aryans, but Greeks and nomads from the Levant. Even Hebrews who fled Egypt would have found their way to the Indian subcontinent, in part. It was supposedly these people who brought the Vedas to the Indian subcontinent and spread Hinduism. So much for them, people fleeing volcanic eruptions, plagues and famine are not Aryan invaders, but refugees. Try telling that to the brainwashed Abrahamic uh, slaves of the planet. 
And that included me for a very long time. And so that's why I use the word. Um, but thank you, God, thank you to the heavens. I'm not a slave anymore. And I have done my research and I, I, I know better. So I apologize to my invaders and to the Indian civilization, to the Bharat Vedic civilization. It was far reaching, far wide and absolutely beautiful. Um, with its low points, and we'll we'll learn the low points, but we'll also we'll we'll glow, we'll enjoy the the high points and learn from both. So towards a thousand BCE, we have at this time a subcontinent which was now flooded with nomadic uh, to semi-nomadic tribes from Africa, Asia, the Far East. All of these groups crisscrossed the land as they would have done for millennium. With clim climate change and, and the region turning to desert, they would have found us a safe haven under the greenery of the subcontinent. These people would settle into small kingdoms, realms, and or republics, otherwise known as Janpadas. Okay? There were 16 Maha Janapadas, or great nation, Maha, um, great nation states maha means great uh, janaparas means uh, the states the nation states so there were 16 around this time from the bronze age to the iron age janaparas mean foothold for the people that's literally it means people taking over or setting foot on a land to have settled agricultural life they were governed by dynastic kings by 500 BCE, infighting and rivalry reduced these 16 kingdoms only to four. Gautama Buddha was born at the end of this period. This period also brought about a contemporary called Mahavira, also, uh, who went on to start a movement which would lead to the religion, what we now know as Jainism, a religion non-ascetic and believes in non-violence. The vows taken by Jains are Himsa, Satya, Asat, astya, Brahmacharya, Aparigraha. Um, so I'll, um, and all this is necessary. So I will tell you what it means. Ahimsa means non-violence. Satya means the truth. Astya means non-stealing. Brahmacharya means chastity. Uh, Aparigraha means non-attachment. He taught the principle of Anekka, sorry, Anek Atavada. That was a tongue twister. So, anik, anikatant vada, meaning the truth is not only that one sees, but from our point of view. It is another way of teaching the metaphysical and the physical duality to the people of the time. It has two principle, principles. Syavyadvada and nayavada. So, S-Y-A-D-V-A-D-A, -A -A. Uh, I'll repeat that, S-Y-A-D-V-A-D-A -A -A and Nayavada. Mahavira is considered the 24th incarnation of the Tirthankara or the divine, a dharmic version of the Abrahamic prophet. One of the reasons that the Buddhist and Jain movements came about during this time was the fact that the Indian subcontinent had become corrosive and a feudal hotbed. The feudal system we had, we, we had, we would have, that was about 2,500 2, years ago, um, had nothing to do with the Vedas or the ideology. Um, it became the means with which the princely states would subjugate people in other words, serfdom. Uh, 
Sometimes that's South Asian something that South Asians do not like to talk about. What was practiced was also animal sacrifice, something that our Vedic ancestors did not practice. Repulsed by this feudal barbaric way of life not known to our ancients, the movement of of this ideological rebellion gave way to Buddhism and Jainism. They were never religions as we call we call them today. This terminology is modern. However, the movements were only to give back the true meaning and signs of the cosmos to a new generation of inhabitants of the subcontinent, for whom the Vedas or the knowledge of the ancients were too difficult to decipher. One of the reasons for this was the climate of the Middle East and North Africa, which has changed the demographics and economics of that region. The only food source they left was uh, the only food source they had left was animals. Plant life had all but disappeared, and the knowledge with it. This necessity of killing animals for food became the culture and ideology. These nomadic people would always end up on the subcontinent and travel through to the far east. Their new culture and food habits became the culture of the inhabitants of, of the subcontinent for generations to come. While today Hindu means religion and ideology. Back in its second and the first millennium BCE, for much of the first and for much of the first millennium AD, it meant any person living on the Indian subcontinent. There was no my country or your country, neither was there anything called passports. As we have forgotten the past, modern historians write history from our point of view, uh, not understanding the chain of events that took place. This is this all becomes history and the currents that form our waves. However, it is important to relate history in the sequence of events that happen to balance our knowledge. As a knowledge base, it's very important to understand th that historically, scientifically, in intellectually, and base at the base and foundation of life on the Indian subcontinent, uh, as far as we know it, comes from the Vedas. This base means free-flowing metaphysical energy. Any type of violence under any label, format, or feudalistic and cultural ideology. Uh, serfdom and suffocation leads to a dharma and will never win, nor is encouraged or promoted. It happens when we are lacking in alignment and knowledge. However, a constant influx of nomadic people who came from lands that were losing their knowledge due to climate change or and cataclysmic events led to the subcontinent receiving more than a regular flow of nomadic people, but also refugees, but also receiving refugees who had to be given back their knowledge. This period of 600 to 500, uh, 600, 500 to 300 BCE, we got an opportunity to see historical data from different sources of for the first time. The Kali, the Pali Canon of the Sutra Pitaka or the Suttanta. Suttanta Pitaka is Buddhist literature from the first Buddhist council held together held after Gautama Buddha's death. Literally it means basket of discourse. It becomes to what is known as Theravada Buddhism. The other two parts of this canon are Vinaya Pitaka and Abhidharma Pitaka. This region of of these writings is modern-day Bihar and the eastern Ganga Valley. Um, and this is taken from the early history of ancient and medieval India. It's a book you can buy online. One of the major events of this period is Alexander the Great's invasion of 
northern India in 327 to 326 BCE. Now, I know some people don't like calling Alexander the Great, and, and I agree, but I, I just had to write it down um, for historical reasons. Alexander first conquered the Achaemenid Empire of Persia and then attacked the area around the Indus, modern-day Pakistan. His reasoning was that he wanted to conquer the whole world. For him, the world stopped with India. He conquered the Buddhist state of Gandhara, its city of knowledge in Takshila and the region of Punjab. He then marched east of to, Nalanda, to Nanda Empire of Magadha and then on to Bengal. His army, homesick, exhausted and tired of the prospect of facing the armies of the Gangetic plains of northern India, refused to move further east. They wanted to go back home. Alexander gave in and returned via Pakistan, Sin. He eventually would die in Babylon in 323 BCE, one year from his death. Um, another king, Chandragupta Maurya, founded what would become the Mauryan Empire. Alexander's invasion of the subcontinent was written and can be read through Megasthenes Indica, that's M-E-G-A, S-T-H-E-N-E-S, Indica, quoted by many later scholars. For the period between 322 BCE and 185 BCE, otherwise known as the time of the Iron Age, a time which gives us the most powerful empire known to the subcontinent, the Maurya Empire, it reached its zenith under Emperor Ashoka and covered 95% of the subcontinent. This period gives us an extensive body of Pali and Buddhist literature known as the Jataka Tales, dating the 3rd century BCE and 2nd century BCE. The literature is textual division of the Kudaya Nikaya books, giving us the vast insight into the Maurya period and post-Maurya period, spanning 265 years and beyond. Another source of this time period is the Puranic text from the Brahminical movements and traditions. Purana means old, thus the ancient historical descent text descending from the people of Sanskrit descent, or what we call today as Hinduism. Some of the Sanskrit texts of this period are Dharma Shastras and the Griha Sutras. This corpus of literature has no exact dates. However, historians have dated the text between 600 BCE and 2nd century BCE. These texts are allocated to the North India region. These texts talk about a variety of issues from this time period with a wide spectrum of thought. There's dialogue, discourse, disagreement and debate on the life of life during this period. The texts contain commentaries, treaties, ethics, responsibility to society and to oneself. They talk about non-violence but they also also one's duty during times of war. The premature structure is about dharma, that is duty. From these texts, we get the very famous text whose name many an Indian or critic of the subcontinent would come across. They are dreaded by some, but interesting to others. Um, Manu Smriti during the 2nd century BCE and 3rd century BCE, sorry, uh, 3rd century CE, uh, this text has influenced um, and been used by many Hindu kings right up to Cambodia. 
this text was later used by the British Empire and the South Asian feudal bobblehead princely allies to institutionalize and making the law for non-Muslims in the empire. However, this text, derived from Dharma Shastras, had never been law. Just treaties written for a period of time. It never mentions the word Manusmriti itself. But Manava Dharma Shastra. While the earlier texts do not have divisions, the modern day text is divided into four parts and talks about again the creation of the world, source of Dharma, Dharma or duty, and the various social classes of law, pleasure, rebirth, and moksha. A bulk of this text is dedicated to the Brahmin priestly class and the Kshatriya class. A very small portion is dedicated to the merchant and peasant class. While nothing in Sanskrit literature forms hard and fast laws as we have today, no laws like the Islamic laws that cannot be changed, it offers treaties and thoughts on almost every aspect of life or duty of an individual in an era. It was never meant to be eternal law or to be used in a time period that was not of its origin. Um, that is, that it was later used and institutionalized as Hindu law by the British and their feudal Indian princely bobblehead allies only shows their ignorance and their arrogance. Noting that Indians, the Indian subcontinent was always a land of refugees for nomadic people from Arabia and Africa, as well as the Far East. The leadership of the land had to keep them under control to avoid chaos and integrate the new arrivals into the local knowledge field. However, knowing the human soul cannot change so fast or give up the ancient customs, the locals would have to integrate some of the refugee customs into the treaties of the land to give up space and time to give them space and time to integrate. Thus, when we say Sanskrit treaties and especially that of Manusmriti are very conflicting, especially when it comes to women, this is the context of the spectrum of conflict. I'll repeat that. Um, when we say Sanskrit treaties, and especially that of the Manusmriti, very, are very conflicting, especially when it comes to women. This is the context of the spectrum of its conflict. Okay, so on the subcontinent, it's, it's a very rich area, rich, rich people, tons and tons of gold and wealth and university and knowledge. People from all over the world came here. Okay, and until uh, even... Um, even the Arabs came here to get, gain the knowledge, took it over and, and rebranded it as theirs. But in reality, it, it, they came to the Indian subcontinent to get our knowledge. So this place was a, a, um, a cauldron of people swirling around the place, refugees, tribal people, uh, nomads, um, um, also invaders. And people would 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 live in, in, in on the Indian subcontinent and obviously people started writing about them, about their customs, and had to integrate their customs and um and knowledge and and law into the laws of that kingdom of that time. And so a lot of these laws or a lot of these smritis, smritis are just text and interpretation of man it's it's not uh, it's not some divine law it's it's like you have a publication today you'll have cosmopolitan or you'll have a national geographic or history in those days publications were known as smritis so 
uh, you could pub you you could have a publication or interpret something. It doesn't become into law, but all of it will take into consideration the um, the people of its particular time, the knowledge, the the their their customs, and 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 make some sort of law to. Um, to manage and administer the population, knowing that they've come from all over the world and it takes a very long time to change. So thus we get the Manusmriti. Uh, but like I said, the actual word is Manava Dharma Shastra. There's no word Manusmriti. It's, it is important at this junction to note one thing. Due to the influx of many refugees and nomads too fast, the rarest states of the time could not handle the flow. Transmission of our ancient cosmic texts would have trickled down at a very slow place, pace. Very often ordinary folk who have access to knowledge would have taken it upon themselves to transmit this knowledge to the newcomers and insist in their assimilation. These people are charismatic and would have been popular as they gathered following and worked over time to share their journey and information to the newcomers. Uh, the political state would have formed above would form would have been formed by previous generations of immigrants themselves who used these migrants and immigrants as cheap labor um, and they would have not appreciated this effort to empower less fortunate once they were eliminated or would have passed on their names were used to control a new rebranded agenda posthumously there were no they were made into prophets and sons of god saints and 2,000 years later, we still believe uh, this without introspection. They were just ordinary citizens going above and beyond to help the downtrodden generations. Um, so that was one part of the original uh, history, as far back as we can go. We will come a little bit to the Moria Empire now. And we'll concentrate a little bit on the Moria Empire. Um, so the Moria Empire is from 322 BCE to 185 BCE. Okay, For those who don't understand BCE, it's AD. So you say um, AD is very Christian, it's Gregorian, and that's why people don't use it anymore. Um, um, so instead of using BC, uh, BC and AD, we use um, BCE and CE for after Christ, okay? Um, so whatever it makes is happy is okay with you. So the Mauryan Empire was one of the largest empires of its time and on the Indian subcontinent. Um, at its zenith, it was ruled by um, Emperor Ashoka, whose emblems, the three lions, is still the emblem of the modern Indian state and on the Indian passport. The first king, Chandragupta, recruited in, uh, in an army, captured the powerful kingdom of Magadha. The local people were in rebellion against this king and therefore sided with Chandragupta itself. Um, um, the local king went in rebellion um, and, and their king and therefore sided with Chandragupta, it is said. He went on to take over the kingdom and laid the foundation for what would become the Maurya Empire. This government was counseled by his minister, Kautilya, also known as Chanakya. It was Chanakya and his government who would go on to write the famous constitution of sorts of the Arta Shastra. King Chandragupta uh, would go on to expand his conquest. Alexander's governors who ruled the provinces, uh, who ruled over the provinces Alexander had conquered were defeated. 
they were sent back to the territory and the territory was annexed into the new empire. A lot of money was recovered and apparently the governor Seleucus the first Nicator's uh, Seleucus Nicator's the first daughter was kept as booty by the Mauryan army too. Megatistinus the author of Indica became the Greek ambassador in the Mauryan court. Chandragupta Maurya ruled for 25 years and used every means to expand his empire. Invasion, diplomacy, marriage, alliances, and a huge network of spies. His empire spanned the territory from the eastern border of Iran to Burma in the east. King Chandragupta then gave up the throne to his son Bindusara and became a Jain monk. The empire was consolidated and stabilized under Bindusara and expanded further to span most of South India. When he died, his son Ashoka uh, took over, or Ashoka, whichever one you, which however you want to pronounce it, took over as king after an internal power struggle with, with his family. He is said to have kill, killed 99 of his brothers. The number seems weird, though. Uh, he spared only one, that is Tisa, or Vita Ashoka. Text from this time, Div, Divya Vadana, a part of the Ashoka Vadana, history of Ashoka, says his father wanted an elder brother to be king. However, the council of ministers did not appreciate the brother, so he was put down in favor of Ashoka, who went on to become Ashoka the Great. Ashoka's violent ascension, ascension to power continued as a bloodthirsty king in his early years. Consolidating his empire, he was known for the conquest of the ancient kingdom of Kalinga, modern-day Orissa and Andhra Pradesh, on the southeastern flank of India. Um, Kalinga was known as the Raj, uh, known for its Raj Dharma or parliamentary democracy. He is said to be smitten by a woman called Princess Kalriki. He invaded the kingdom whose people resisted the last man. He was so remorseful that he converted to Buddhism and spread his message, bringing peace to the land. He erected pillars throughout the kingdom, asking people to give up violence and live in harmony. He promoted the values of Buddha and sent Buddhist monks around to spread the message of peace and never, and never invade another kingdom again. Ashoka's kingdom was known for many things. Good, uh, things good, administration, economics, a large bureaucracy, military. Um and commercial missions abroad. The empire under Ashoka had an extensive network of roads, signposts, pillars for information, guiding travelers. The empire was connected to the Western Greek world. When Ashoka died 50 years later, a trouble brewed and the Mauryan emperor was killed by his commander-in-chief. The empire slowly crumbled due to the border territories asserting their independence. Fighting that reduced the empire to just three states at the end of 182 BCE. However, there were been critics to history and this which has come down to us, to our present generation. With modern historians finding out that Emperor Ashoka became Buddhist monk uh, before he invaded Kalinga and went on his destructive spree, meaning all the peace talk in the world had no effect on the man. It was just for political reasons that he changed his label. Uh, his bloodthirsty violence continued and eventually brought down his empire. As modern-day Indians, this distortion in our history by Marxist politicians indoctrinated into our mind leaks of insolence. The war and violence on the ground is an overflow of the war and information in our heads.
we don't have the right history, the turbulence in our head continues, the page does not open, and the violence transfers to the streets. After the fall of the Mauryan Empire, we have Shunga, the Shunga Empire from 187 to 87 BCE on the northeastern flank of modern India. The empire had ten kings with its capital, Pataliputra. The Shunga Empire made a big role in patronizing art, culture, education, learning, architecture, and construction of Buddhist stupas, namely the great stupa at Sanchi. Uh, the last of the kings from the empire was assassinated and the emperor and the empire came to an end. It was followed by the Kanwa dynasty until 30 BCE in north-central India. Uh, there were four kings. They, were, they did also allow kings from previous empires to rule as vassal kings in the far corners of the dominions. They were Brahmin kings, sorry, and this empire folded and led to one of the well-known and dominant empires of the subcontinent, the Gupta Empire. From 319 to 543 CE, there were powerful, very dominant Gupta Empire. The very dominant Gupta Empire came to force. It was known as the golden age of science and literature and politics and economics or the age of renaissance for the Indian subcontinent. It produced the great scholars and poets called Kalidas, Arabia Bhattanam, bah, sorry, Arya Bahatam, sorry about that. Arya Bahatam Varamihira and Vatsayana, the great epics of India known as the Ramayana and Mahabharata, were placed in high regard and committed to written down texts during this period. Many Puranas, history, treaties from past empires were written down. Great works of art and architecture were established with influential kingdoms around the Indian subcontinent, namely the Narada, the Vishnu, the Brihaspati, the Katyayana Smritis. They were the treaties of the now famous Kamasutra um, and the Amara Shoka, immortal treasure or collection or dictionary. Thus, in all 17 kings, however, the exact number area covered by the Gupta Empire is unknown. They seem to be Brahmin kings, noting that all Sanskrit names would come from this era. Um, all the many other theories would have been put forward. Uh, the Chinese traveler Fa Shen arrived in India in 405 AD and made very important observations of this period uh, for being prosperous during the period of the subcontinent. Trade with foreign empires uh, greatly prospered during this time. Uh, other Chinese travelers, Zhuan Zhang and Yi Jing, traveled to the subcontinent during this time and left accounts. Of course, it, of, of note of, is the Indian-Roman trade relations over land that Arabia and Asia Minor and the sea, which carried on even after these empires ended. Trade of this time would, have, would also mean an exchange of literature and knowledge, all of which, um, all of this is noted in the periphery of Eterian Sea. The Gupta Empire came to an end in 543 CE. So, the last empire I'd like to talk about is the Vataka Empire. In the Deccan, the modern southwest India, there was a south. There was another empire called the Vataka Empire. This founder of the line of the dynastic kings was was 
Vindhya Shakti I. The empire commenced in 250 CE and went on to 500 CE. The actual region was, which was occupied by the Watakas is subject to date, ranging from South India to South Central Asia. Uh, however, just the name of the first king tells us the story, Vindhya, a mountain range in the South Central region of India. Shakti means force. The Vindhya is also a deity after whom he was named. That's the force of the mountains. Um, of course, everything is open debate and there are no real treaties of this era besides inscriptions. The original empire is said to have been established. Um, yes, the original empire is said to have been established in the north of the Narmada River and the second king of this dynasty seems to have expanded towards the, into the Deccan, western flank of India. Later descendants were divided into two branches, the Parvapura, Nandi Vardhana branch and Vatas Gulma branch. The split in the family which normally spells an end of the empire. There was a there was also political alliances to marriages between daughter between a daughter of a Gupta king in the north and a son of a Vataka empire in the south. One of the great works of architecture that came out towards the end of this dynastic period is the famous rock-cut Buddhist Ajanta Caves, carved from a single rock. Uh, like all imperial families, infighting and feudal feuds for succession led to the empires caving in. With Hari Shena, the last known king in 500 CE, there seems to be two more kings whose names we are unaware of. So, my friends, that is uh, a little bit of the Indian subcontinent today. Um, I'll go through some empires that I found on on uh, on the Indian on Wikipedia, but we've never learned about this. I cannot believe all of this that we are the data I collected, uh, and this is just just of it. But all of this was never brought up in school. We never read all about this. So I'm stunned that we have so much of knowledge, and the then the Marxist rice license Raj of India who 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 ruled the country when I was there and for a very long time and it they are absolutely disgusting people I have to say I have no love for them they changed history they just left out what they choose to leave out um, enough to be paid by the lobbyists of the colonial relics of empires so here let's just say we've never learned most of this in school or university and i'm going to go to some with you the empires on the indian subcontinent the chira dynasty from 300 bce to 1124 ce the pandya dynasty 530 550 bce to 345 ce the chola dynasties 300 bce to 129 ce the Indo-Scythian dynasty from 90 BCE to 45 BCE. You have the Indo-Parthian dynasty, 21 CE to 100 CE. The Western Shatrapatas, uh, sorry, Shatrapa, Western Shatrapa, 25 CE to 405 CE. Kaushana dynasty, 1 CE to 255 CE. Uh, Nagas of Padmavati, early 3rd century and 4th century, mid 4th century. Um, the Pallava dynasty, the Kadamba dynasty, Western Ganga dynasty. Uh, the Rai dynasty, Maitrakas of Wallabi dynasty. Um, Ch Chamana dynasty, Chaulakya dynasty, Shashanka dynasty, Harsha dynasty. Gujran Pahavira dynasty and the Raja Shutras of Manya Keta in the Pala dynasty. 
So that is all we have today. It is only 40 minutes. I thank you for your time. I hope you had some knowledge. Please, please, please go and research it. It's very important to research because that's the only thing that's going to get you. Uh, I'm also going to ask you to write because writing is the most beautiful healing thing. You will see what you 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 understood. And by, by looking at it face to face, you can make corrections. Say, okay, well, this is not right. This is not right. Maybe I should do some more research. And the more research you do, the more you heal. So this is what uh, knowledge is about. It's about healing. And I hope for you that you had a good time. You had took down a lot of notes, but you can go back and forth on these uh, concepts. And I hope you have a great day and see you tomorrow.